наблизити перемогу в цій війні, гарантувати безпеку, дати якнайбільше захисту нашим людям і нашій державі. Я дякую усім, хто б'ється і працює саме заради цього, заради наших людей, заради нашої незалежності. A stalemate in the Donbass as winter sets in, a frank and grim assessment from Ukraine's top general, and a glimmer of hope as Ukrainian forces move closer to Crimea, crossing the Dnieper River in Kherson, and establishing a foothold on the Russian-occupied left bank. So what does the war look like on the ground as the weather turns cold? Well, I've got just the guests to help us break it all down, so stick around. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s trendy DuPont Circle neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And back by popular demand and joining me from Mount Vernon, Virginia, on land once owned by George Washington is military analyst Michael Kaufman, a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, a principal research scientist at CNA Corporation, and a senior editor at War on the Rocks. Michael is also the host of the new and must-listen Russia Contingency podcast on War on the Rocks, and he just returned from a trip to the front line in Ukraine. Welcome back to the podcast, Michael. Hey, Brian. Good to be back with you. Good to have you. So so for the last couple of weeks uh, on the podcast, we've been discussing the, the interview and essay by uh, General Valeri Zaluzhny about the situation on the ground being stalemated. Let's kind of wanted to get your take on this. We haven't even talked about this off mic as you've been in Ukraine for a little while. How did you interpret Zaluzhny's assessment? And how do you see the situation on the front lines at the moment? And how was it received in Ukraine? Okay, three categories of questions. Um, and I'll admit, I was not listening to your podcast while I was near the front lines in Ukraine. So I do I not don't. know what you figured out with your previous guests. I prefer you have a clean shot at it. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. So um, first, I interpreted, um, one, I felt that Zaluzhny said a lot of things that were sort of an objective, clear-eyed look at the problem where they were after the offensive had culminated. And I think he said a lot of things that you probably recall me saying in late mm -hmm. summer, early fall. And there wasn't a lot of delta in the assessment of the situation. Um, second, I think that he tried to advocate a vision of how to get out of what he uh, described, characterized as a stalemate, but we shouldn't focus too much on the word because it's a politically charged word, right? And I've seen now people try to come up with other words that are synonyms for stalemate to dance around the word of stalemate, Brian. That's not doing anybody any good, right? Um, it's a potato-potato debate at that point. So, uh, and, he, and he articulated, you know, I would say, a vision. I don't know how coherent it was, the linkage between drones, electronic warfare, you know, counter-artillery battery, mine clearing, and what have you. But the core of it was, and, and here's what I understood it to be, and we should we should dig more into this on back because I actually have thoughts on us coming back mm -hmm. from Ukraine, having met with a lot of, uh, uh, let's say, military units at the front and also with military with different folks uh, um, uh, back in Kiev. So my view is, you know, the, the, the thrust of the message was that 
uh, Ukraine is largely entering a phase that's going to be characterized by positional warfare. Um, this phase principally favors Russia, okay? And the ways out are changes to force employment. That's how you use the forces capabilities you have. So you have to develop new operational concepts, new tactics, right? So you have to innovate in how you use what you have. And second, also through technological innovation. That's why he measure, mentions Eric Schmidt and, uh, and looking at technology, looking at drones, maybe looking at electronic warfare and other capabilities. Okay. Um, there are uh, several points in there that are debatable that I don't necessarily agree with, but I think are great to have raised in the conversation. Second, the peace to some extent debates the topics with itself because it says that we need, you know, this gunpowder, this technological innovation, but also there's no such thing visible on the horizon if you read the piece, the interview, right? So it's sort of, it's having a dialectic with itself, right, Brian? <laughs> no, and, and this is, Michael, this is something I want to, dive real deep into in the second half because i'm what exactly he thinks ukraine needs right now and i i i, I i've been kind of banging my head against the wall trying to figure out that what that is but but go ahead I'm right right so the peace ball says kind of we need this magic technological sauce but also there's no such sauce available right and and so it's not in the hunt it's not actually in the hunt for um some kind of unobtainium but but it is uh, it, it, it is raising it at least as as one of the uh, one of the ways to think about. It. All right. Um, next, uh, I'm sorry, I'm quite jet lagged, so you may have to repeat some of the questions. I've, I've been uh, in for a while. It's always a pain, like when you get back and you're getting up very early in the morning to adjust the time. So oh, it's second, a boring trip. I do. Yeah, the second part you asked, um, how's it received in Ukraine? Yeah, I think I saw different takes on his interviews. Lots of people try to interpret in different ways. Well, you saw how the local administration received them when Zelensky said it wasn't a stalemate. Uh, yes, there seems to be a battle of disease developing here, but that's another that's another topic, not really a military topic. But. It is another topic, but I will tell you that that was the topic du jour in Ukraine because the Minister of Defense had fired Karenko, the head, Major General Head of SSO Special Forces, and it looked like he had done it without the illusion that it's necessary knowledge yes. agreement. And that all was playing out while I was there. And I'm not going to say anything about it. I'll just say that um, it appears that some of the long-severing civil issues in Ukraine had bubbled to the fore. And mm -hmm. I that uh, in ways that were overtly visible and clear to everybody from Kiev to Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. um, okay. So that's the part on how it was received. Um I actually think that most of the piece was well received, probably with the exception of the use of the word stalemate. And mm -hmm. I, and okay, like I because the word is politically charged, right? Because you know the using that word, I think the way Zaluzhin meant it, and this is my interpretation, as you ask, is not as a lasting stalemate. Although he did place it in the context of World War One, and that's what conjures that that right uh, that perception in the West when folks think stalemate and well. If you put that word in the context of World War One, which she did in the article, good things do not come to the minds of Western audiences, right? Yeah, unless you have the United States entering the war, but that's not going to happen. Well, okay, so, um, so I think what he really meant much more is that the the war is currently stalemate, at least in one sense or another. And but okay, but this is a phase, a period of the war, and just to be clear, this war has been positional in nature. It has been stalemate in nature, 
at times before. Like, for example, if we look uh, late summer 2022, if we look at the winter of this year, prior to the start of the Russian offensive, which still didn't really go uh, anywhere in um, uh, late January. So you can you can debate, you know, how much that basically this is not a new phase, but it's a fair argument that 2024 looks like it's going to be a prolonged positional phase. All right. So the question is, how much do you want me to get into this now versus the second half? I want to, yeah, I want to, in terms of what he thinks we need, this super magic sauce that's going to change this, I reserve the second half to talk about it. We could allude to it here. But what I really wanted to kind of dive into here are a couple of things. Like, where does this go from here? Like, how and why did we get to this spot? Because this seems to be the scenario that everybody was dreading. But at the same time, we all kind of knew it was coming. Um, not least of all you. How did we get here and where does it go now? What should we expect as we watch this war play out over o- over the over the winter? And, you know, was the Ukrainian counteroffensive a failure or were our, our expectations just unrealistic? Well, those are not mutually exclusive. The answer to both can be yes, but okay. uh, like, it's not an or. Right. Uh, well, I mean, you could say it's an or, to which I'll say yes, but... Um, the okay, so how do we get there is a very long story. If you want, read the article I put out in September in War in the Rocks with Rob Lee, Perseverance and Adaptation, uh, looking at Ukrainian counteroffensive three months in, and it really tells you how we got there. If you want the very short story of how yeah. we got there, uh, the answer is, of course, multi causal. It has to do with uh, Western choices on assistance, Ukrainian choices in military strategy. The decision to extend the defensive Bakhmut, the decision to use newer brigades that were inexperienced and with a fairly low amount of training as the lead force in the assault, the decision to have a split offensive operation along three axes of advance, right? The timing of it, the interaction between Ukraine and Western countries involved, and so on and so forth. Um, and, and there's, I mean, there's plenty to get into it. I would say that. There, uh, the conversation of how we got there is usually an unhelpful conversation, blaming different folks in the in the equation, whether it's the United States or um, or Ukrainian choices. And I will say one thing I really like in Zaluzhny's interview is he took responsibility as commander in chief for some of the decisions that were made and for how things played out. And he was very clear that some of the problems were very much to their planning and execution. Okay. It was very refreshing to hear that, all right, because a lot of people who are advocates for activists on Ukraine's behalf, right, Brian, we are too, have had a pretty unhelpful role in trying to shift the blame for everything that's happened on the United States onto Western countries over the course of the summer, and that led to a lot of retaliation in the papers through leaks, right, and government right. leaks, and none of that helped anybody. First of all, because some of those views are simply untrue, and they're being advanced by people who have no idea what happened and how things played out and why. They just don't. Second, displacing the blame on the United States, upon whom Ukraine's military effort depends to some significant extent, doesn't help anyone, all right? And certainly not going to help anybody at this stage. And and I really saw a change in tone and tenor of communication, I think, from Ukrainian senior officials over the last couple of weeks that said, yes, these are facts. It is true we didn't get all the things we wanted or we didn't get them when we wanted them, but we wish we had had these things earlier. 
but we're gonna stop this whole blame and grievance, you know, uh, approach. Doesn't help anybody. Not, nothing but that comes out of this. This is good. Yeah, and just to be clear, you can't go back in time. We can't fix that now. The question is, what are we going to do in 2024 and 2025, right? Mm -hmm. Like, okay, I get it, and people are welcome to continue debating it, and historians will continue debating. That's fine, but that's not going to get us to a solution now. Um, all right, so uh, so how we got there, how we got here is uh, a series of choices, and I don't want to get too far into this conversation mm -hmm. because... Um, we'll, we'll spend the whole, the whole podcast here. Let's talk about where we actually are now. Where are we now and where is it going? Yeah. All right. Where we are now is the offensive has culminated. If you didn't believe that before Zolution's interview, it's very clear <laughs> from his published interview that, that it has, right? Um, and, and it likely had, uh, culminated sometime between late September and early October in my view. Um, you will note that probably we had a podcast back in the summer, yep. if you recall, and you had asked me this question, and I had suggested that might happen uh, around that time frame, if you remember. Yes, I do. That was back in August, yeah. Yes. And so and so, I think that roughly events seem to play out, I mean, not exactly, but but uh, similar, uh, similar to the conversation we had in the previous podcast. So um, I think where we are now is uh, Russia's been trying to seize the initiative and holds the initiative on parts of the line from Kupiansk in the north down to Svatova Krimina. They're trying to counterattack at Bakhmut and they launched a major uh, uh, offensive, a localized one, but a very significant one in October around Avdiivka. Avdiivka yeah. was in a natural salient, so it was one of the likeliest places for Russia attack where they could try to complete a double envelopment. They lost a lot of equipment and they weren't successful, but they are still prosecuting the offensive and making gains. And so the future of Dievka is very much in question, meaning there's a fair chance Ukraine might lose of Dievka in the coming months. I know that they will, but it also depends how they choose to play it. I hope they're not going to turn up Dievka into another Bakhmut. I've been very clear with folks. Uh, that I did think extending the defense of Bakhmut was a good idea. And the more I've seen how things have played out and the more I've talked to people in Ukraine at different levels, the more I'm convinced of the rightness of that view. Uh, it's not just confirmation bias. I think the the preponderance of evidence overwhelmingly stacks in that direction. But uh, but out of Dievka, I'm I'm in, I'm getting increasingly worrying just looking at the trajectory of that fight. Although I don't think it's a fight that that's strategically significant for Ukraine either way. But neither was Bakhmut per se, except the that it drained resources from other parts of the front, right? Right. Neither was Bakhmut, but. Um, and, and this is a big difference. There are many differences between Bakhmut and Avdiivka. I think a lot of the, the commonalities are superficial at best. But uh, but Bakhmut was significant in that Bakhmut led to force management choices that that affected the plan for the offensive in the summer and the units that would be used in the offensive in the summer as opposed to the units that stayed fighting in Bakhmut. Right. Okay. That's, that's, you know, when you talk about the offensive, you really have to talk about the choices and the fights that led into the offensive and what happened over the winter and spring, right, before you get to the summer. You can't just have the offensive in a vacuum as though nothing leads up to it. Um, right. I mean, that's just, it's just not a, a, an ahistorical view. So, um, you know, in, at this point, it's it's clear that um, the only thing that, that Ukraine really is pushing is this cross-river operation across the Dnipro in 
uh, Kirsten, and if you want, we can get into what. Yeah, no, I did want I did want to get into that that because that's interesting. But just in broad strokes, where do you uh, like? What should we expect to see in the coming months from the Ukrainians and from the Russians? I think a lot of attritional fighting. I think that uh, I don't expect to see either Ukraine or Russia make significant territorial gains. Um, I think Ukrainian forces are fairly exhausted, particularly of their offensive potential. Uh, meaning they've spent a lot of their available units of action. They spent a lot of the ammunition available. And it's clear to me, having been at the front, that the ammunition supplied has been dramatically tapered down to what can be best described as sufficient for defense, but not sufficient to prosecute um, further offensives. And uh, it's clear that the way uh, different capabilities are being deployed at the front is making it very difficult to mass an attack uh, in maneuver mechanized formations. And that Ukraine and Russia are very much in the same situation, which is the way Zeluzhin describes it as well. Yeah. That is, that is, that they're basically, and that's why he, that's why he used the term stalemate. Um, Each side has visibility into what the other side's doing is the way I understood so, it. So drones have moved, FPV drones, first person view strike drones have moved to the forefront ahead of mines. They have not eliminated mines or artillery or anti-tank guy missiles, but they moved to the forefront and they made attacks and movement by vehicles in daytime near the front basically impossible which means that both sides have to move up at night. They have to conduct assaults either early morning at dawn break or very late in the evening. And most of the last few kilometers to the point from which they're going to attack, they have to advance by foot uh, if they're moving troops, right? So this basically has dramatically slowed down any pace of advance, has made a lot of the attacks dismounted, and has made them into smaller and smaller groups where we've gone from you know, company level assaults down to platoon, now down to assault detachments, which are about the size of half of a platoon. And it's been the case for both sides in most parts of the front with a few exceptions. All right. And what's, what's basically meant is that you have attritional fighting. You have a lot of firing from static, from fairly static, well-established positions. Um, you are not seeing either side being able to mass to significantly pressure the the other side or, or, or really change the, um, or make significant territorial gains, okay? Although Russians have been trying to do that in Avdiivka and the Russian attack at Avdiivka, I will have to note, to me is foreboding because their initial attempt of development was employing forces of scale not seen since spring, summer 2022. They were attacking in larger formations that were better coordinated with the use of artillery and air power and they were attempting to re regenerate the ability to employ force of scale that they couldn't do the spring and winter that I really haven't seen for almost a year in this war. Now, they weren't successful because Avdiivka happens to be a front line that's been there since 2015, so it's well defended and fortified. It's not the part of the front that's a uh, post-February 22 part of the front, right? Mm -hmm. But, um, and, they, and they paid a pretty heavy damage bill. But in other places, the line is far less defended, and that's one of the issues we should discuss uh, maybe in our podcast, on what a future Ukrainian strategy might be, what are the things that need to happen in 2024 going into 2025? That's exactly where I want to go. Actually. All right, so so we're, we'll get there in a second, but what I'll say is this is the current state of affairs. Um, I suspect that uh, what we're going to see is a continued fight for the initiative, but the Ukrainian resources to sustain a fight for the initiative right now uh, are fairly low compared to what they had to work with in the summer and in the early fall. That is the objective material reality as I understood it uh, there. 
And on the Russian side, while Russia has more resources across the board, they do not have a decisive advantage. That is, the relative advantage that they hold has not proven to be decisive or sufficient for major breakthroughs or gains. So they are also forced to fight. They attempted uh, a serious maneuver-style uh, assault, but it, it was ultimately unsuccessful, and they've also been forced to fight dismounted and take a more traditional approach. So that's where we've been. Um, perhaps we should, we should now talk about where things are going. Yeah. All right, so, um, you know, my sense of it is, uh, and, and this is some areas where I don't disagree with delusioning per se, but I, but I, how about, I debate this with myself because, you know, half the time I end up disagreeing with myself as I'm debating these topics. And, and, and that's one thing I really liked about the piece. I liked that the piece was debating with itself because it reflects the reality of the situation and it reflects an analytical and both an intellectual approach to some extent. Um, or maybe it was written by five different colonels, which also happens. But um, just being frank about my own experience, having right. time around the defense establishment, sometimes a piece has a competing dialectic because it's a reflection of the person's thinking. Sometimes a piece is together, put together from different people on the, on the general staff and and edited and revised. So you might have might have multiple minds behind. But um, all right. Well, that being said. First, um, I don't think this is a position of war yet for two reasons. Uh, the Russians do not accept this as a position of war. They're actually attempting to engage in maneuver warfare. That's what the DFK showed. Okay, so they are not interested in sitting in their trenches. And this puts in question the second premise that positional war favors Russia. What is true is that the war favors Russia in 2024 either way, no matter how you characterize it. I'm going to discuss why. In a minute, 2024 is going to be a very difficult year. I know these last two years were difficult, but Brian, I'm going to tell you right now that a lot of people are not fully cognizant, or at least it has not set in how difficult next year is going to be for a number of material reasons. I'm going to get into that now. But before that, we need to ask the question, is a position more favorable to Russia? If the Russian local objective was simply to keep what they occupied, I would say yes. But it is not. Their objective is to take at least the rest of the Donbass. How do we know? They keep going on the offensive. Why attack if, you are, if your objective is to defend? We know clearly that, that that is their goal. And they spend a lot of manpower and equipment to do it. Which means they're not interested in, in sustaining a positional war any longer than Ukraine is interested in sustaining it. This is issue one. Their local objectives require them to be on the offensive. It does not allow them to accept a positional war still me. Second, um, in order for it to be a positional war, Ukraine would also have to entrench, which it has not done because it's been on the offensive for much of uh, 2023. And there are important parts of the front where I think Ukraine really needs to dig in and needs to imitate what worked for Russia, which is entrench, cement in, put down minefields. But if you don't need it, you don't need it, right? Defense costs nothing. It doesn't cost men. It doesn't cost ammunition. It frees them and it saves them. If you entrench and you um, dig in in a way that substantially multiplies the forces you have in place, you are able to free a lot of your force for offensive operations. You are able to put your second echelon or lower quality troops into defensive positions. 
you are then able to free your assault and maneuver brigades for further operations. So this is, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm hearing you correctly here, this means kind of defend in some places to free up forces to attack in other places. You have to establish a prepared defense, like the way the Russians did. I mean, part of the reason the offensive was unsuccessful is the Russians mounted a very effective prepared defense, right? Just as the Russians copy everything Ukraine comes up with that seems to work, that is effective, Ukraine needs to take a page here out of Russia's book. The prepared defense is highly effective. And this is one thing they have the tools for, right? We don't have have artillery ammo necessarily to resource offensive. There are are manpower reconstitution issues, but Ukraine can definitely dig in and entrench to maximize what it has going for it, right? And and to dramatically reduce the risk that Russian offensives in next year are going to have any success, right? I mean, that's just important. Right. And this gets to the next point. Uh, It is not really a stalemate. Uh, in in most material categories, artillery ammunition production, production of equipment, production of drones, production of strike means, and manpower availability, Russia's advantaged looking in 2024 to pretty much that whole year, all right? And it may also end up being advantaged in 2025, depending on how things play out. So it's not a stalemate in practice. That advantage is not decisive. It's not crushing in my point of view. But it is acknowledged. It is acknowledged in Ukraine. And it's important for people to understand it because when folks say stalemate, it conjures a sense of, oh, well, for those who are less interested in this war, Brian, I can let this thing go, right? Meaning we don't have to focus on as much. Maybe this war will freeze or maybe something else will happen there. But that's not the case. Actually, a lot of decisions have to be made by Western countries now. If they don't want Russia to sustain an advantage in this war, Heading into twenty, heading in through twenty twenty four into twenty twenty five, a lot of important decisions have to be made still. So you can't take the whole stalemate thing for granted. It's just not the case. Um, next, the war is fundamentally an unstable system. There's no stable stalemate in place, right? Um, a lot of things play out in the war in a nonlinear fashion. So the Russians are going to try to keep attacking and take the initiative. And they're going to try to take more of the Donbass. And it's going to be a challenge for Ukraine to reconcile uh, the things they're going to have to do next year. And I'll outline them briefly as, on the one hand, I think the best way to think about next year is as a build year. A year during which Ukraine tries to retain initiative while reconstituting the force and building up the capability for later in 2024, 2025, right? Setting the conditions for the ability to like prosecute a theory of success or a theory of victory down the line. But there's an obvious dilemma. How do you try to fight for the initiative and pressure the Russian military to prevent them from affecting force reconstitution while trying to do the same thing yourself, right? And the answer is, it's going to be hard and you probably can't. Right, and you're gonna have to. They're gonna have to. You're gonna have to pick what you can do. Um, so, so I see. You know, I see a real tension between trying to put together like a new theory of victory, trying to put together another offensive operation. And to be clear, where we are with artillery ammo, I don't think we can resource another offensive like this. I don't actually think we can resource another major offensive in the first part of next year, or maybe even all of next year. 
and Ukraine has a lot of issues to resolve itself um, in force reconstitution and training and force quality and manpower too. Uh, I know that may cut across some fairly idealistic notions I've heard that Ukraine will just keep going in the offensive and uh, things are going to keep happening into next year. I think Ukraine has the ability to leverage pressure points on the Russian side, like the Crimean Peninsula. I think Ukraine can develop and substantially scale up its production of long-range strike means and create real problems for the Russian military, for Russian air power, for Russian forces in Crimea and around uh, uh, Ukrainian borders in Russia. So I think Ukraine has quite a few opportunities to prosecute campaigns, just to be clear, because I think the notion as well, there's a stalemate on the ground, so nothing's happening. But if that was going to happen next year, next year is going to be pretty dynamic, actually. But do you expect the front to move much? No. Yeah, that, that's it's, it's like we have a frozen front. We don't have a frozen conflict, but we have a frozen front. In a lot okay, of but the front isn't all that matters. What happens to the forces of matters, mm. right? What happens to material manpower and ammunition is what matters. That's how the war is won long term. Yes, the front is important, but it's not the only thing that matters. It's not the only measure what's going on in the war. So we should be looking at this as like kind of like setting the table, if you will, for the next phase of the war and which side makes the smarter choices now is the one that's going to have the advantage come next spring, next summer. Is that is that a good way to look at it? Okay, so here's what, I mean, yes, in part. I think first, you have to think about what's Russia going to do with this advantage? It's going to attack. And they've shown consistently that they're going to attack prematurely before they're ready because that's what Gerasimov does. That's what he does always. That's what happened in Avdiivka. That's what happened in the Winter Offensive. So Russians want a victory, and they want to try to wrap up the war earlier rather than later. Right? It's just... You're just kind of curious. If they were so confident the time was on their side, why are they so impatient militarily? We'll just put that aside as a proposition. Um, right. Just, just speaking, like, looking at the trend in the Russian military behavior and in, in how they're, uh, and how they conduct the past. Okay. Ukraine has the opportunity to actually absorb and attrit a lot of these attacks. Use this coming year to set the conditions uh, and to... Uh, effectively use it as both a build year and a year during which uh, they they find, you know, let's put it this way, like a center of gravity and that well could be Crimea, could be other pressure points to create real problems for Russia. But you just understand, like, the war isn't won or lost in one offensive that happened in the summer. Remember I talked about this with you uh, late summer where people's notion that, okay, the history of this war is it was fought until Ukraine's failed offensive, and then the war ended. Like, that doesn't make any sense. That's not how it's going to play out, right? Um, and and we all like, people like to reason by historical analogies, and you can find lots of historical analogies to other periods in the war where you have a period like this. You have an attritional period where you have a period where one side has to build while also, while also trying to pressure their opponent to the extent that they can, and they're trying to reconcile um, mm -hmm. the different parts of this formula. Okay. Um, yeah, the I I am skeptical, although it depends how things play out, that Russia has significant opportunities to move the line next year. I mean, I think that, if, look, 
if something like Avdiivka falls, it ends up leveling out the front. It doesn't create a dramatic strategic breakthrough in the front. Clear. Mm -hmm. If Russians are, there are other areas that are that are potentially vulnerable too, like Kupiansk or Liman. So it's possible that Russia will be more successful, but so far they've shown that they have not been. That the the dynamic in this war and the character of warfare affects them just as much as it does the Ukrainian military, and they've not found great solutions to it. If that makes sense, I'm not seeing no solutions to the problems that Zelushin discusses in his article. Um, and I don't have good evidence that they're going to find them in the coming months, right? Okay. On, on the offensive, I just want to make a point because I didn't answer your question earlier and I can answer it briefly. Do I think the offensive was a failure? Let me give what I think is at least my view of it. I think it was unsuccessful in achieving its objectives. I think, ironically, at the tactical level, that is how it was fought, the balance of attrition, what happened in the summer as fall is actually a draw. It's a relative draw between the two parties. I think that is where the offensive can, should not be described as a failure, per se, in how it was fought uh, and and the cost paid by both sides. At. at the strategic level and at the political level, yes, I think it was unsuccessful. It did not achieve its objectives. It did not impose a decisive defeat on Russian forces. It was not proof of concept that Western brigades with this equipment and training could perform significantly better. Although, as we got later into the offensive, Ukrainian forces learned, adapted, and started to perform better, these units that were trained by us. That's why I said back in the summer, the jury's out. Things can be fixed. It provided a lot of lessons for how we can do different, how we can improve training. This is another part of the story I want to talk about next year, which is, Yes, the offensive was successful, but we learned a ton from it, right? That we can do differently next year and things we can improve, things we can scale up and things we can fix. Um, I I think politically, though, of course, it wasn't successful. And just to be clear, the campaign to strike the Russian Black Sea Fleet and displace it from Crimea is not a substitute for that. I've seen people try to shop that around and sell it, and it's just not, it's just not the case. I'm sorry. And the Kersel operation, I don't think, is going to substitute for it either. Although, it'll be interesting to see where it goes. Yeah, I, I wanted to drill into the Kherson operation right now because that got a lot of attention. Um, the, 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 they certainly got the Russians' attention. Um, they think we're going to unleash the forces of hell on them. Uh, but Ukrainian forces crossed the Dnieper and basically got a foothold in the left bank. How significant is that and what does that portend? How significant is that? The honest answer is it's not clear what Ukrainians are really able to do as foothold. Okay. Uh, I think the operation was high risk. And so far, the way it's gone has actually gone better than folks had expected because the risk that uh, this would end in a dramatic failure early on was high, Brian, just to be clear. And the Russian military clearly got a bit worried, replaced their commander there. But the truth is that this operation comes at the end of the offensive. There isn't a real supporting offensive in the South now to pressure Russians or marry up to this. It's come at a time where Ukraine is now fairly low, much lower on ammo, and Russia holds an advantage in fires. And it's not clear that Ukraine can really move a lot of equipment or sustain the force across this riverbank. They can entrench, and it can become a problem for Ukraine for Russia later on, not this year, but looking later into next year, depending on how things play out. But it's also not clear the costs that are being paid in this operation relative to the gains. So right now, the honest answer is, I don't know how it's going to play out. 
but I'll be frank, I am very skeptical that this is going to achieve anything that the initial offensive was meant to achieve in this operation. I just don't expect these kind of results from it. Does this suggest that Crimea could be a target of a later offensive? Is that this is something that's been discussed? Well, um, honestly, I don't know. I, I can't answer that question. What I will tell you is it's clear if you look at Ukrainian strategy over the last six months that Crimea is seen as the main vulnerability in the Russian military effort and the main pressure point. Okay, And that's not going to change. The problem, I think, is that Ukrainian efforts to um, maybe, I would say, I would say uh, isolate maybe too strong a word, but to begin to put Russian forces in Crimea in the Russian position more precarious, uh, in a more precarious condition or state, would have worked much better if they could have married up to a successful offensive to sever the ground lines of communication to Crimea, right, in the South. And absent that offensive, that campaign will have potentially lead to Russian recovery and we'll probably have to do this all over again down the line in 2024, which is possible. Just to be clear, I see Ukrainian uh, ability to hold Russia and Russian infrastructure and the Russian military at risk only increasing in a greater depth, right? Of course, I should also mention that it's clear Russia has been stockpiling missiles and drones that is producing in much greater quantity now for another repeat campaign at Ukraine critical infrastructure this winter. And we also have to be cognizant of that because that's going to play out and it yet has. And it's not clear what other capabilities Russia is likely to acquire from North Korea and Iran. And that's become a more a growing factor in this equation. Uh, and we had discussed this before potentially as a factor, as you probably, as I'm sure, noticed that North Korea has come in with some significant amount of artillery provision for Russia. Yes. And that is going to bridge. Uh, that is going to be important because it's going to bridge for Russia the deficits they have in their munitions stockpile as they are ramping up their production of artillery ammunition. And it's not a small amount. It's not a colossal amount, I think, yet, although I don't know anybody that possesses the numbers uh, here. But it's it's based on what I've looked at with colleagues who do open source analysis, um, and some of this has been published online. It's not an insignificant amount. It's a notable amount when you look at the quantities involved on a month-per-month -month usage basis. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, if we put a kind of bow in the first, you know, tie tie up the first part of the discussion with a bow. I mean, basically, we expect kind of a frozen front, um, but that doesn't mean it's a frozen conflict. Uh, it's also important what's going on other than the front in terms of positioning for 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 future for for uh, for future offensives. Um, so, I mean, superficially, we don't expect it to move, but there's going to be a lot of action. Yeah, yeah. I'll say the problem with a frozen front characterization is not going to be frozen. People are going to be trying to move it. I'm just skeptical here of Russian success uh, in in this regard, or at least if the front moves. Um, I don't know. I'll be honest. Right, I don't like the frozen front characterization. I okay. think that's actually going to be fairly dynamic uh, still, but I think. Um, I think both sides are going to struggle to make gains. I, I certainly don't see strong prospects for Ukraine 
in much of the coming year. And I think that the, the year is better used for reconstitution, for building, and for sorting out a lot of the fundamentals. But that's a debatable point. I think that Ukrainian leadership undoubtedly feels that there's a pressure to show gains, to show successes, right? Uh, Bologna. But my view is that there actually isn't. And there's no point to looking at, the, at it this way. I think that there has to be a there has to be a serious conversation that we're not in 2022. Mm. This is 2023 and we're heading into 2024. And the way people are looking at this war in 2022 and the way some folks may be like conceiving of what Ukraine needs to do to maintain Western support, they don't. It's not 2022. Doing that's not going to get Ukraine more ammo because there isn't more ammo to get. Okay. That's the reality too. And the U.S. isn't going to stop supporting Ukraine if they don't have another axis of advancing Kherson or anywhere else they choose to have them. Okay. It's not going to decide U.S. support. Right. It's not going to decide Western support. It's not going to make the offense of the summer successful when it in general was not. Okay. So that's not going to change these things. That's not the way to look at it. Right. Um, there has to be a real look of strategy as strategies about choices, Brian, and choices have to be made, right? Looking into 2024 and 2025, and it's going to be very important what the United States does, what Western countries choose to do, and also, of course, what, what Ukraine actually elects as a strategy it pursues. And that's the perfect segue. Um, in a few moments, we will continue our discussion and to look at just what it would take to break this stalemate if it is indeed breakable in eastern Ukraine. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlene McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And backed by popular demand and joining me from Mount Vernon, Virginia on land once owned by George Washington is military analyst Michael Kaufman a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, a principal research scientist at CNA Corporation, and a senior editor at War on the Rock. Michael's also the host of the new and must-listen podcast, Russia Contingency Podcast on War on the Rocks. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to Power Vertical Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. You can still follow us on that platform, once known as the Twitter, at Power Vertical, and you can also follow us on Threads in Blue Sky, at Power Vertical. Політиці Росія ще здатна нести зло, заплющити очі ні у кого не вийде. Ми маємо боротись, ми маємо берегти саме нашу оборону головним пріоритетом і маємо щодня додавати нашій державі більше сили. So one part of General Zaluzhny's remarks that caught my attention and I alluded to in the second in the, in the first half was his claim that, that, that only a technological advantage that gives Ukraine air superiority and increases the precision and effectiveness of its artillery fire could break the stalemate. Um, I know you hate that word, um, <laughs> in the East. Um, this puzzled me, quite frankly, a little bit, Michael, because the attackums have finally arrived. The F-16s are in the pipeline as Ukrainian pilots train up what was the general driving at here, in your opinion? And we, we, we kind of started to get into this in the first half. 
Are there other weapon systems out there? Is there some magic sauce you seem to think? No, there isn't. And I take you at your word on this. So what are what are we talking about? So uh, I think that it's uh, putting putting the pieces up together. Part of it is capability development, right? For example, Russia holds the advantage in electronic warfare, but I see good uh, good prospects for Ukraine to achieve no shell parity there or take the advantage itself to deal with a drone threat. There have been tremendous evolution in how electronic warfare has been used in this war in the last year. Uh, uh, co-evolution with how drones have been employed. And we've seen a lot of change on the battlefield, one. Two, when he talks about air security, he's not talking about air security employing traditional platforms like F-16. It's very clear that Zolution does not believe that they're going to achieve with air security with F-16s. And maybe if they could have, it would have been earlier ago. He's talking about attaining uh, air advantage to employment of uncrewed systems on a combination of means, right? The way the way air security is being discussed here. So he's talking about drones. Yeah, but he's talking about the effects that air superiority might provide, the effects that localized air superiority might provide, right? But attaining them in a different way to a combination of other means, means that are accessible to Ukraine and that do not necessarily have counters on the Russian side, like integrated air defense and air power and what have you. Yeah, so he's talking about these things. That's why he's mentioning Eric Schmidt and whatnot in, in his right, okay? So he's talking about drones. So, for example, there, but there are several challenges right now that can be solved on drones that will make a big difference. One, you know, Ukraine uh, has huge advantage in innovation adaptation, but it's really struggling in scaling and output and serial production. That's one area where Russia is much more advantage over Ukraine. That's why Russia's held an advantage in the number of drones used at the front, just so it holds now an artillery fires advantage. But that can be that actually can be answered, and that's a problem that can be solved for. Second. Drones cannot be used in mass now because of the way the technology works. So all the people that basically say, oh, drones are going to replace this and that. Drones are being used in addition to. They are not replacing artillery. They are not replacing armored fighting vehicles. They are not replacing the most important thing that you need. Man-powered infantry. You cannot take terrain with drones. Okay, sorry everyone who watched Terminator. I hate to break it to you. We're not there yet. Okay? And, and I have to joke, do you know what the most unrealistic uh, aspect of Terminator was, Brian? Just to me, no. like, as a military ally. <laughs> when when you watch that movie uh, uh, in the 80s and you see the Terminator robots, which for whatever reason just look like basically human skeletons with lasers, right? The most unrealistic thing is there isn't another Terminator bot with like a whole bunch of tools and wrenches riding behind the first one getting ready to fix him when he breaks down. Okay, because that's the reality of actual warfare. And that's the reality of what happens with uh, drones and uncrewed systems, right? So if the most unrealistic part of it isn't that there's metal skeletons with lasers, it's that they're not breaking down left and right, and there isn't a whole set of other systems designed to maintain and support them, and logistically maintain them in the fight, and nobody's running around with battery packs to replace these things, right? And and so on and so forth. So basically, I'm, I, I was that man, I didn't watch Terminator with you. You would have ruined it for me. I would have ruined it for you. Um, uh, I, I I mean, okay, so we. But never watch The Hunt for October with me, ever. I will ruin this movie <laughs> right off the bat. It is 50% of the people I think that do what I do got into it because they watch Hunt for October and the rest of them watch Top Gun. It's usually one or the other. Um, but I will I will ruin both films. But Hunt for October, I will definitely ruin for anybody that wants to watch it for, for all sorts of technical reasons. It's a great movie. I love it. But all right. Sorry, we got, we got on the... Uh, <laughs> 
I told you I'm jet. I told you I'm jet lag, and that you need to stop me in the event that we get off the wall. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Uh, okay. So, so what? I mean, what needs to be happening for these things to happen? Are these capabilities the Ukrainians can develop themselves? Are these capabilities that they need our assistance to develop? What? What's the mix here that needs to happen going forward? Because this is really, this is the crux of the matter right now. Uh, you said it in the first half, Michael, the decision strategies, strategies about choices, and we have to make a lot of choices. Both the Ukrainians and their Western friends have to make a lot of choices in the yeah. months going forward. What what needs to happen? Okay, and we have to make now because the track record has been that choices whose effects have long lead times were not made by Western countries. And that's how, honestly, that is a big a big part of how we got to where we are now, right? It's not the key deciding reasons. The key deciding reason to me when you ask how we got here still lies with a host of, of, of choices and decisions that were very much also made on the Ukrainian side. But why do we not have enough artillery ammunition right now to support another major offensive, let's say, early in the first half of 2024? And the answer is straightforward. Decisions made, particularly by European countries, in the first year of this war. So, right, that's that's the reality. We can point to other things that the U.S. didn't do, but remember for a long time, I was banging the drum, the two big issues are artillery ammunition and the air defense, right? And if we don't solve those, the, st the story was straightforward, and this may seem very boring to folks. If, if you have uh, six, 800,000 artillery shells, but you don't have ATACMS missiles, you have yourself a major offensive. If you have ATACMS missiles, but you don't have 800,000 artillery shells, you now have yourself an offensive. You have ATACMS missiles that you can use for strikes, but the line's not going to move, right? Does this make sense? Yeah. So you get to solve for the core issues, and then those other things are good and important to have too, but if you don't solve for the core, right, the big treadmills you have to run on, those other things are not going to make the difference at all, okay? They are the, like, uh, th these Wonder Waffen are not going to resolve the what's going to happen for so the way I look at what needs to happen now, first, we need to significantly increase production of key munitions that Ukraine requires. Second, West. take, yes, the West. Ukraine is already doing it, right? What it can, but Ukraine has major problems in production of gunpowder, propellant, and ammunition. All right. All right, obviously, just, this goes without saying, None of what I'm saying right now really matters nearly as much if there isn't a supplemental budget passed for Ukraine, right? So if we, we have no money to do any of the things I'm talking about right now, Brian, because it's not provided by Congress, then uh, you can forget some of the things I'm saying. I was going to put that as a big asterisk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Put a, put a, put a, put a, put that in bold caps, like yeah. the professional staffers that are that are. Right. If we have no money for any of these things. Uh, they're, we're not going to be able to do them. And if you think Europeans will be able to compensate and do all these things without us, uh, boy, are you in for a rude awakening? And, and all the evidence has been that they're not. So, um, one, increase production of key systems munitions that we are in, okay? Two, take the lessons learned and, and the experience from the training this year, change it, scale it up, work with Ukraine on this question, right? Uh, to help them with force reconstitution, maintaining force quality. Um, I think we need to help them scale their own production on things like drone systems and other capabilities, a lot of things they can do themselves. They can localize maintenance and repair, um, not just for their vehicles, but for Western equipment they've acquired, and they are remarkably good and innovative of it. I saw things that were very impressive, that were very surprising, 
how far they've gotten in being able to not just maintain their equipment, but also to produce parts and other things for it. So you and, saw the MacGyvering with your own eyes. Yeah, but I didn't just see the MacGyvering. I saw the manufacturing that no longer looked like MacGyvering. You know, it was uh -huh. sort of like, hey, we can make some of these things from scratch and we can make them for your platforms. And we've cracked the code on that over the last year and we have the industrial capacity to do it. We see more resources. I'm going to give a shout out. This has always yeah. been Ukraine's secret weapon. I mean, uh, and I've, said, I've, said this, like I've said this before, Ukraine is a country of tinkerers and innovators. It is. You know, it, we, need to, we need to get the other half of the equation, which is skilled mass production of key things, right? right. That requires money and, and all this other stuff and, and getting, getting parts of bureaucracy together. And here I want to give a shout out to a particular organization that we had the opportunity to visit. The uh, Pritula Foundation has remarkable uh, workshops and um, uh, industrial scale facilities where they're able to repair and maintain equipment, modernize and, and modify, uh, uh, Soviet, uh, Russian captured trophy equipment, Ukrainian equipment and Western equipment. And they're doing phenomenal work. And it's not just them. I mean, I think the biggest foundation, the biggest organization in Ukraine writ large, I think has come back alive. And although I have a work with them, I'm happy to give them a shout out too. But uh, Pertuol Foundation, I was really impressed and found remarkable what they were able to do. And here's the truth. If if a percentage of their budget of what they're working with was provided for by Ukrainian government funds, by by our funds, it would make way more difference. Because the reality is the Ukrainian civil society and these organizations are far more efficient, far more effective, and let's be honest, far less corrupt than the, than the ongoing government efforts, right? So you get way more bang for your buck. In parts, if you invest in and scaling up uh, some of the civil society efforts, and they're pretty large. I mean, folks have no idea what percentage of their equipment, of their drones, of their vehicles, units get from these foundations. It's quite a bit. You will be surprised. Okay, like that's. I'm just being honest. So uh, support the Ukrainian MacGyvers and help them scale up production. Basically, well, support the society efforts and. I used to get, these are real facilities and they're not small. Okay. With whatever you're picturing, it's not a bunch of guys working in a garage, which is going to be clear. Right. Do you understand what I'm, what I'm, what I'm telling no, you? No, I, I, <laughs> you can correctly characterize them as yeah. ancient innovators and tankers right. on a much larger scale than we're yeah. accustomed to. Right. Thank you. Right. And, and all right, and they need resources, um, but we also need to bring our know-how and how to scale production. That's some of the things that that I think people are trying to do. Um, okay, there's things that I'm not gonna tell. Like I'm not. My job on podcast isn't to tell Ukrainians like what what they should do, or what they need to do. They need to pick their own strategy, but that strategy needs to match the means available, right? It, it can, there cannot be a fundamental mismatch between the ends being pursued in the strategy and the means available. Now, in an ideal world, if everything works out, maybe the maybe the means are there for for major offensive operations this year. Right now, it's not looking that way to me. Maybe they can sustain localized offensives or other things. I don't know, but the strategy needs to match the means, Brian. Okay, and you know when when you ask like what else the West has to do. Yes, there are long-term transition programs like F-16s, right? There are all sorts of programs to provide other capabilities to Ukraine. GLSDB might make more of a difference down the line than ATACMS when it gets there. For people who are not familiar with it, that's the ground-launched small diameter bomb, which marries 
the HIMARS launch booster effectively with a small diameter bomb, but provides a smaller, cheaper system with much longer range. Picture something that's much smaller than ETACMs. It allows you to use it against much smaller dark targets in depth. So if you were prosecuting an extended strike campaign far behind Russia lines, that's the kind of capability that would be much more useful rather than the low availability ATACM system. Okay. So there's a lot of things like that. And, you know, I don't want to get in here with a big shopping grocery list. I'm just giving like a taste of it because, right, take us a long but, time to run through it. But everything you spell out here sounds very doable to mm -hmm. me from the Western side. I mean, the toughest thing was your first point of getting that supplemental budget passed, which, uh, you know, I'm sorry. I, right now, the House of Representatives could pass a resolution saying today's Friday, November 17th, as we're recording this podcast <laughs> on Friday, November 17th. Um, but I mean, the the helping Ukraine increase productions of systems and munitions, that's doable. Supporting the Ukrainian MacGyvers and helping them scale up their production, that's doable. Taking the lessons learned is obviously doable. If we do all these things, can that break the stalemate? Yeah, you have to have a vision. You have to build towards something. It can't be, okay, this offensive wasn't successful. Let's do the next one three months later. That's not real. Yeah, let's do the next one five months later. That's not realistic. Okay, and also, you have to reevaluate the theory of success and the approach, right? The objectives, political objectives may stay the same, right? That's for Ukraine to set, but we have to take the lessons learned from it. It is all doable. Believe it or not, I came back from this trip not with a sense of gloom and doom. I came back seeing that folks had clear-eyed understanding of the situation and the reality of the battlefield. Yes, the military was tired and 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 parts of the force were exhausted, but morale and motivation were still good. Mm -hmm. um, as I heard Jack Watling recently say on a podcast, and I agree with him, where he said, happiness is not the same thing as like morale and motivation, right? These these are unacceptable terms. When you're in a front line, by the way, troops have all issues that they're working with. They are short of X, Y, Z. They all have problems. You're not going to show up on the front line and have troops say, you know what? I have everything. We don't have any casualties. We're not short of any equipment, and we're full up on ammo. It's, it doesn't exist anywhere in the line, right? Um, but I don't, I don't, I don't get a sense of of a loss of motivation. Yeah, morale, of course, takes a hit when you have an unsuccessful offensive. It sure does. But I don't. I, but I didn't come back from Ukraine anywhere with a sense of despair. Does that make sense? That makes sense, and that's really, really good to hear because this is not the first time I've talked to you, either on or off the air, when yeah. you got back from Ukraine, and that's a contrast to your previous trips to Ukraine. Okay, and well, it's a contrast from the summer trip because let's be honest, there was a huge amount of distance because what was being said in public about the offensive and the reality on the ground and the way it was really progressing. And I think, unfortunately, um, I, I got involved in the conversation that presented a very a pessimistic case, which was then exactly what solution ended up right just recently. Which actually turned out to be right. Right. And what also, there wasn't a big difference between, I, I honestly, like the evidence is in, it's clear, it's not, clearly not a big difference between the way Ukrainian general staff sees the situation and, right. and what I was saying. Like, no, well, I, I believed you, but I didn't want to believe you. I guess well, not. I, I don't want to believe you either. Like, I don't oh. want to believe you either, Brian. It's not, wasn't doing it. But yeah, as an analyst professionally, you like being right, but you also hope you're wrong about certain things. Like, remember the Roth of the War? 
Yeah. I hope that was wrong, that this war was going no. to happen. Yeah. That was like beating the drum that there was going to be this large-scale invasion that was going to be an existential war for Ukraine. Do you remember this? Yep. I, yeah, I was hoping that secretly I'd be wrong and none of it would happen. But Right. Okay. Well, no, um, but if you're, if you're coming back, um, op, I mean, you know, uh, optimistic maybe is a stretch, but you're not given to, you know, irrational exuberance, right? Uh, yeah, and you've you known you, I've you never know, known yeah, you to be. Yeah, I'm pretty pessimistic. Something else, like you know that, and yeah, yeah. and I didn't that. Was... I didn't just tell you, by the way, a happy, optimistic story. Praying to you how difficult and potentially dark 2024 looks, but I also saw a clear path through 2024, and I heard from people a real cognizance of where we are, what could be done to change things, and and what a vision might look like. And by the way, I'm not selling that vision. I'm not here to tell you what I think Ukrainians think. I'm telling you what I think should be done. This is my own interpretation, right? right. Um, uh, I, I'm just giving you my sense that there's a lot that can be done in 2024 to build toward 25. And there's one point I want to make. I think it's important one. I don't know how much time we have. I'm gonna we're, we're bumping up against the end, but yeah. You don't, being, based, on, based on the expression on your face, how much time we have. But look, um, I want to make one last point, which is there are folks who think Aha, uh -huh. we've arrived at a stalemate, and you've heard this argument every single month of this war. And I gotta say, now we should negotiate and let's get a ceasefire going. Okay. This is completely and profoundly unrealistic. One, we are not at a stable stalemate. Okay. That's just not the case. All right. This is just a period in the war. Two, there is nobody to negotiate a ceasefire with. All right. Three, the Russians are very confident now and they think they're winning. And the resources are on their side. So why would they negotiate a ceasefire at any point now? For if they do, it's only because they intend to rearm. Right? right. If you think that Minsk 3 is a solution to this, then you learn nothing from Minsk 1 and Minsk 2. Like right. you have to be kidding. By the way, to be clear, I myself in 2015 thought that Minsk 2 might be a viable solution for a brief period of time. And I was wrong and I learned from that very quickly, just to be clear. Like and 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 there's a big difference between like learning from experience and not learning from experience and keep trying to coming up with like a minus three somewhere in here. So um, there is no, the trajectory of the war is not a mutually hurting stalemate right now. It doesn't exist. There's no reason why Russians are going to agree with it other than they are favored in a rearmament period for the coming year, Brian. And it would not be a good idea because all you will get is a continuation war, but one that is more favorable to Russia based on what's going to happen in the intervening uh, time, right? So I don't see that case. I don't see anybody in Ukraine, to be honest, interested in the ceasefire negotiation. No. Nope. Most importantly, let's just put the Ukraine aside. There is no counterparty to that transaction. There isn't a rush that's remotely to the ceasefire. Right. They're on the offensive trying to seize the initiative. So I don't understand because I read these articles like uh, in, you know, there's a recent one by Richard Haas and Charles Kupchen, I have no idea who they intend to negotiate a ceasefire with. Right. Like, I just disagree. I just don't know who the counterparty is for that transaction. Right. No, I mean, I think my most important takeaway here is that you do see a path to victory. I mean, this is the kind of doomiest, gloomiest part of the war, you know, in over 600 days we've seen, except for maybe the very, very earliest days. And you see a path to victory now. And that okay. that's my big takeaway. Can can I can I engage in bad World War analogies? Uh, sure. And the reason all bad is World Wars, uh, by definition, are uh, statistically anomalous events. That's why we call them World Wars. So the analogies are better drawn to other wars. 
But most people like draw analogies to World Wars because these are the ones they remember. So 1916 was pretty gloomy. And 1941 heading into a lot of 1942 was pretty gloomy too. Okay, just being very honest. And if you are in that period of war and say, you know what? That's it. We should call it. Okay. Right. Um, yeah, it looked pretty gloomy in that time period. It required folks going on the defense, building the resources, and coming up with a theory of success. And to be clear, it may require revising the local objectives or may require revising the how, most importantly, the how you get there, right? Or whatever it is. I am not... Um, I don't see Ukraine in a place where they're willing to revise the political objectives in the war, but I definitely see Ukraine as being in a place as revi to revise the theory of success, right? How you get there and the things you need to do. Um, but, I, but I see a path to get there. I see how 2024 can be used. I see how actually the resource side of the equation looks a lot better for the West in 2025. I want to make that clear to folks, right? Mm -hmm. The Russian advantage is not likely to be decisive, or at least doesn't look that way yet. It will become decisive if we don't do the right things in 2024, though, right? Just to be clear. Mm -hmm. Like, it it can. 2025 may look just as bad uh, if the right decisions are made in 2024, but I actually see the trajectory in many areas of Western production, of Ukrainian innovation, of scaled-up uh, production of ammunition and all these other capabilities as looking a lot better in 2025. To be frank, with the just got on on congressional spending, right, right. Well, then that's what we got to keep the keep the pressure on. Michael, you just changed the headline of this podcast. The original intended headline was "Deadlock in the Donbass." I am ditching that and changing it toward a theory to, to, toward a theory of victory in Ukraine because I think that's where we kind of wound up on on this show. Yeah, I think I think that's what we need. Uh, I hope we're going to get there. I don't know that we will, but. Um, but I think it's important to be clear-eyed about where we are, but also what can be done to change it. I'm not being Pollyannish about this at all, just to be clear, and I'm debating it with myself uh, on a pretty regular basis, how much of this is possible. Um, what I do think is that the mindset of 2022, uh, we have to jettison that at this point, and, and some of the approaches from that, from that year, and we have to be realistic about where we are in 2024 and what we can expect. Uh, and and how the the war is going to look in this year? All right. Well, I, I, I think if I don't wrap it up, our producers are going to launch an offensive on me. So probably best wrap it up. That's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington McFowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me has been military analyst Michael Kaufman, a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, a principal research scientist at CNA Corporation, and a senior editor at War on the Rocks. Michael is also the host of the new Russia Contingency podcast on War on the Rocks. Michael, thanks for an enlightening discussion. Even with jet lag, you managed to make us all a lot smarter. Al, thanks for having me back, Brian. Same I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Lance Legas is in the virtual control room, keeping all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Zachary Bell handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. 
I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. You can follow us on the platform formerly known as the Twitter at Power Vertical. You can also follow us on Threads and Blue Sky at Power Vertical. The Power Vertical podcast will take a hiatus next week due to the Thanksgiving holiday, but we'll be back in action on December 1st. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix prepared by our production team. And-